0: Welcome to this podcast on Protection of Civilians in Conflict, my name is Fiona Smith, I'm the Head of Advocacy, Policy and Campaigns at Oxfam.
1: Hello, my name is Rachel Hastie, I'm Head of our Protection Team in Oxfam. How do you feel we're making progress in terms of respect for international humanitarian law? Are we getting there? Do you feel there's progress? Um, Sadly, I feel we're going backwards rather than forwards. If you look at some of
0: the hottest conflicts which are taking place all over the world at the minute, and Syria, of course, is the conflict which is on people's TVs almost daily. um, We're seeing a situation where people are living in besieged areas, are are being starved um, by both sides of the conflict, where civilians are actually being targeted um, as um, a Tactic, basically, um, international humanitarian law and human rights law, is the international framework which protects civilians. Should be, you know, sort of what we hold up as our our kind of gold standard of legal processes, and it just simply isn't being observed in so many places. But then, to a certain extent, that's exactly what we are there to do. We're there to bear witness. We're there to take those messages, and we're there to make sure that these duty bearers
1: do do that. And that's what my team try and do. Yeah, and I think one of the things that is really evident that when civilians are not protected, um, they run away. That's exactly what I would do. If I think about my, my my home, my community, Um, and the things that people have told me about that moment when the tanks came in or the first shot was fired or the first bomb was dropped. And I think I know exactly what I would do. I'd gather my family together and I would get out of there. And we see people making these journeys, whether it's one just inside their own country to get to a safer area, or whether they're going on very long journeys, sometimes across international borders, becoming refugees in other areas. And I think one thing that um, I've read this week, Oxfam's just done some research in Libya um, with a, a couple of our partners there, um, with Medu and Borderline Sicilia. And they've been interviewing people who've come through Libya, who've, who've made it into um, Italy. And it's absolutely horrific, the kind of things that they they captured, the torture, slavery, rape. Um, we, saw, um, we heard stories of gangs imprisoning people in underground cells. Uh, of the women we spoke to, only one had not experienced sexual violence, people were tied up, um, 74% of the people that they spoke to had seen the murder or torture of another traveller. So people are making these journeys, they're fleeing violence but then, but then suffering this awful abuse on the way. I think also one of the big issues that have come up again and again in the media is, and then there's such a resistance from countries to take those people in and um, support them and care for them. Well, absolutely, and I mean, we're really sort of, you know, Europe
0: is a fantastic example of that, isn't it? In that, you know, the people who have been fleeing here, quite often they've come from, if we use Syrian refugees as an example, but they're not the only refugees who are coming. There are refugees coming from Eritrea, where you're forcibly conscripted into the army and possibly kept there for the rest of your life. Um, Afghans, and of course, Afghanistan, the war there is hotting up at the minute as well. But if we look at Syria as an example, many of the people in the camps which are surrounding Syria are giving up hope that they're ever going to be able to return home. Um, there's, it's still a very complex situation, there's multiple different parties who are all continuing the war inside Syria and nobody really knows what the future is. So quite often they're making the very difficult decision to um, leave a place where quite often they don't have any legal status, where they are unable to work, and where they're possibly at risk of being targeted by the security forces and making their way to Turkey, over to Greece and hoping to get through to Europe but still being kept in Greece in a situation which is very difficult because Greece is a country which obviously um, has suffered its own um, challenges over the last number of years and there's a significant number of refugees there now so, really, making sure that we can try and um, advocate and get that message out there that we really need to think about a sort of a longer
1: term sustainable um, solution to the crisis is something we really have to think about. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think um, I've been going to and from Lebanon for, for quite a while now. Um, and if I think about one of my, one of the trips I went to, I went up to the Beka Valley, um, which is uh, up near the Syrian border, it's quite high up. It was really snowy, it was just this most awful snowstorm. And uh, lots of Syrian refugees there are living in these, what they call informal tented settlements. So they're, they're, they're literally tents in the snow, where they have very basic facilities. And the were, kids were running out uh, as we arrived. Um, we'd gone to go and do some discussions with them, but when when it became apparent how difficult the situation was up there, we just filled the the car with water and, and, and bread. Um, all their water had had frozen over, and kids were running out, and they're barefoot in the snow. People living in these these tents are blown away. I mean, people they've they've fled conflict. They're living in really pretty appalling situation with no prospect soon of going home. Um, I think uh, I never cease to be shocked, actually, by by the things that I see that often aren't on our TV screen. Think again about somewhere like um, DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo. Right now, one of our priorities, um, the country's got 3.8 million displaced people um, and a new outbreak of violence in Kasai um we've been responding to in the last few weeks and there we've seen 1.4 million people i mean it's it's an incredible amount of people who have fleeing violence who are living in appalling conditions so again and again we see this but i'm also aware that that some people can't flee there are people who don't or can't flee and then they live in these protracted conflicts in incredibly difficult situations where you see this continual uh, deterioration of their situation. They have longer-term impacts as well. No, absolutely. Um,
0: And I think, you know, if you think about Yemen for an example, you know, what we've got in Yemen is we've got, you know, sort of on the verge of a failed state, really, where we've got um, a conflict which has been going on for over two years, And that was already impacted on a country which has been suffering from chronic food shortages for many many years before that Um, it's now being bombed lots of different um, lots of different civilian targets have been bombed and this is really driving a situation where you've got hunger you've got war and now you've got cholera as well and the sad thing is that cholera is an entirely preventable disease But if you've got a country where the entire infrastructure is being bombed, where rubbish is lying on the streets and you don't have access to clean water, the disease is going to run absolutely wildfire. So, you know, we know that this can be stopped. And it can be stopped, it's complex, but the first thing we can do is stop selling them weapons um, because that would be a really major thing to do. But also we need to make sure that... um, people are able to eat so also making sure there's enough money which has been given to Yemen to actually feed people is helpful.
1: Yeah just this morning I read um, I read a fantastic blog actually by one of our colleagues Mohammed Farah Adam he's a he's one of the programme managers and I found it, it it's so moving he was talking about going off to quite a remote village where people have been really suffering because of because of the huge levels of hunger I mean it's something like 60% 60% of the population, 17 million people. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was talking about going, going and seeing people who brought very young children who were, who were severely malnourished. And we'd been doing a, a cash assistance programme. So he went and heard about how fantastic it was. And I think the hardest bit was right at the end, where what he'd had to do was actually tell those people that we had finished funding and we couldn't continue to give them the cash assistance. And having him describing these severely malnourished children who'd started to recover and then the fact that the programme had to end, I mean, it was quite heartbreaking. I really recommend having a look at, having a look at that blog. Um, and we can see it in other places as well, um, where you've got, it's not just targeting civilians, it's targeting civilian infrastructure. And what the impact of that is when you, you really break down the healthcare, you break down um, public health systems, schools, roads, and so on. At the moment, I mean, in February this year, we had the first famine in six years in South Sudan. Uh, we see countries like Somalia, Nigeria, Yemen yeah, I brought to the brink of famine. And that is all driven by conflict. It's all driven by conflict. Um, so, you know, in many, in many ways, actually, perhaps... Sometimes any of us would look at, look at all this and wonder what, what actually could we do and, and, and what sort of things should we be doing. Um, I know what, when I think about my team, some of, the, some of the work they're doing, which is trying to help people cope with some of the most appalling impacts of conflict, try and just reduce their risk, help them avoid dangerous coping mechanisms, reduce their vulnerability to exploitation, help them get access to services or negotiate themselves with armed actors. And I know there are, there are things that your team is working on at the moment, Fiona. Absolutely. I mean, all of our um, humanitarian um, advocacy
0: strategies have protection of civilians, civilians absolutely yeah. at their heart. You know, that, that is what we do. And partly it's about calling on different people to abide by IHL. It's about trying to make sure that different mechanisms are put in place to protect people from all forms of violence, but in addition, sexual violence as well. And frankly, if you were to say, what do these people need? These people need peace. That is the single biggest thing that would make a huge difference to their lives. So what we're really pushing for is for donors, for the countries themselves, to really be trying to think through what would a sustainable peace process look like and making sure that women in particular are included in that because we know that it's much more likely to have a sustainable peace if women are included in those peace talks. And sadly, this is still the case in practically none of
1: these examples. Yeah, I agree. Um, And I think some of those things that we've been pushing for are really important when I think about the examples we've talked about today. For example, safe routes for people who are fleeing, fleeing conflict. And there's certainly a lot we could be doing about that, particularly in Europe. Um, don't push people back too soon. I think that we quite often see this desire to see a problem as solved and push people back, but the conditions have to be in place. There has to be some peace, there has to be security, there have to be livelihoods. I think absolutely all, all um, parties to conflict, all international um, structures should be protecting civilians. Warring parties have to abide by the rules of war. Um, We should also be, I I mean, I think the work that we've done around Yemen and the arms trade treaty in particular has been really impressive. Don't enable attacks on civilians. um, Stop those arms transfers um, that we know are being used to to carry out abuses and, and, and breach the laws of war. And I think ultimately you're right, we've got to support peace processes. We've got to, as the international community, there's so much more they could be doing to prevent and respond and, and resolve conflicts. And that's absolutely the, the, the kind of the two sides of the pieces of what Oxfam's doing around protection of civilians. And ultimately, I think right at the heart of it is, is that very strong idea for this World Humanitarian Day. Um, civilians are not a target. Civilian in- infrastructure is not a target. And if we can make progress on that, then I, I think we'll, we'll certainly see some of those awful examples um, that we, we've talked about being something of the past. Thank you very much. It's been well, very enjoyable talking to you today, Rachel. <laughs> thank you, Fiona. You too. And thank you, everybody who listened to this podcast.